While we've all pressed pause on so much because of COVID-19, at Yukon Health, we know that your health needs never stop. Whether you have a serious health concern that you've been putting off or need to schedule a routine appointment, now is the time to reconnect with your healthcare providers. From virtual visits to office appointments, we're committed to providing you with the best care in the safest environment. Yukon Health, here for you then, here for you now. Well, here we are again with the usual plaintive cry, say it ain't so, Rob Manfred. As I speak these words to you today, it appears we hang between two highly suboptimal outcomes for a 2020 baseball season, a campaign of something like 60 games or about a third of a regular season. And if that happens, expect someone who normally hits 300 to hit 190 and maybe somebody who normally hits 190 to hit 400, the other option being no baseball at all. I am certainly not rooting for that outcome, but the humanist in me thinks that there's no safe way to play anyway, no real way to protect personnel from the virus, which is now rampaging through Florida and Arizona and Texas, as well as several other states that don't host major league teams So nothing in that sense would be better than something this one time. It doesn't mean it would feel very good, but no one should get sick or die because we are asking for entertainment. And I need to remind you that although we are talking primarily about strapping healthy young fellers without underlying conditions, some of them have them, some of them live with people who have them, And beyond that, there are, of course, numerous non-playing personnel who do have underlying conditions, who are older than 25. And there's a final factor, and we lose this all the time, and you'd think that people especially who are well-versed in baseball and understand what an average is would be quicker to grasp this. But when we say the virus primarily affects older people, or at least primarily kills older people, it can infect anyone, that that is a generalization that doesn't take into account every case. It has killed mostly old people, but it also has killed some young people. And there's another dimension that we haven't fully grappled with, which is we don't know everything about the long-term effects of this. And we have seen many people who have survived the virus complain about long-term consequences, damage to their internal organs and other issues that have a very long tail or may never heal. We can't tell you what five years after being infected and surviving coronavirus looks like because it's been six months, not even six months, not five years. Thus, as is so often the case in life, I find myself in an ambivalent place. I hope they reach an agreement. Part of me thinks it would be better if they don't for the reasons just discussed. So I have nothing to say about that, nothing that I want to say anyway about the disappointment of this season, the inevitable disappointment of this season, which is not even about the negotiations. It's about 
this crushing thing that has happened to the country and to the world, all of the dysfunction that has been revealed in Major League Baseball and with the Players Association and the relationship between the two has existed in some form or another for about 60 years, maybe a little more at this point. I mean, the owners and the players have been at loggerheads going back to the very beginnings of the game, but in its current form, it goes back to the dawn of the Marvin Miller era when the union became a real union and not a Potemkin union, but it wouldn't have manifested the problems between the two in the way that it has without this unique set of circumstances. And so I suppose I could tell you, given what we are facing, less than what we want, more than what we need, some story about disappointment, some real say-it-ain't-so story about Joe Jackson or, God forbid, Pete Rose, and maybe at some point I will, but for now, I just can't bear it. Considering it, considering talking about those subjects, the question I kept asking myself was, who could need another dose of negative to get back to positive again? Not I, my friends, not I. I've also found myself asking if these stories I tell you will have the same resonance if Major League Baseball owners alienate so many of us that the game no longer has real relevance to our lives. It would be like podcasting Tales of the Shakers or Legends of the Forian Phalanxes. You want to play Six Degrees of Baseball? I think I can get you there in two. The critic and radio host Alexander Wolcott was born in New Jersey in the former home of the North American Phalanx. The Phalanxes were 19th century communes. They were kind of a fad inspired by a French philosopher. Philosopher? Yes, there was less philesse. Philesse being an adjective form of felicity, which I have just invented here and now via a slip of the tongue. Less finesse as well because Charles Fourier was an anti-Semite. I mean, that's not the only reason it didn't work. It's not even the main reason. It's just a reason to doubt his thinking which involved small communities of like-minded people working together towards common goals, which sounds great on paper and tends not to work out once you expand the circle beyond, well, one, (laughs) two. It's complicated. I mean, look, we've got a whole bunch of owners and players who would seem to have similar goals in terms of getting a baseball season underway, but they can't do that. And there are roughly as many major league players as would be in a Forian commune. Anyway, the North American phalanx, which was in New Jersey, lasted from 1843 through 1854. Wilcott was born there in 1887. He later went on to be a writer for the New York Times. He was a member of the Algonquin Round Table of which Ring Lardner was an adjunct member, which gets us back to baseball. Or we could go with a full member, the columnist and activist Haywood Brune, both of whom, both of whom, Haywood and Brune, well, he was kind of heavy. Folks, I need to start referring to my notes more often, at least after nights in which I haven't had more sleep. Both Brune and Lardner wrote a great deal about baseball, in addition to other things. I hope you're familiar with both. And Brune's famous lead about the Yankees in the World Series, or specifically Babe Ruth in the World Series, The Ruth is Mighty and Shall Prevail, still comes up from time to time. It's one of those immortal baseball lines. Baseball is everything, and everything is baseball. But if baseball also isn't anything in an active sense, I'm not sure that the statement has the same impact. And if that's true, then what do we do? What do I do? I could do an ongoing series about Eohippus, the prehistoric midget horse who has been extinct for 40 million years. 
that will have relevance to all our lives. I honestly am fascinated by Eohippus. Back in the days when we could go to museums and I happened to take the children to the Museum of Natural History, I would gravitate as much towards Eohippus as I did to the dinosaurs. I'm just not sure I could pull that off as a series. Join us now as we explore Very Tiny Horses. I don't know if you've ever watched the PBS series Nature. They've changed narrators, but for seeming decades, going back to when I was young, the narrator, no matter which animal he was talking about, was always on the verge of taking a nap. And on a rainy Sunday afternoon, there was nothing better to send one off to the realm of Morpheus Then to turn that on and listen to this fellow drone, the elephant has gray and leathery skin. The world inside my head would go dark, so would the actual world outside. The next thing I'd know, I'd wake up, William F. Buckley would be droning on about something, and my dad would be asking me why I hadn't yet done the dishes, though four hours had passed since he asked me. And I'd say, well, Pop, you see, I was watching TV, getting myself an education, and this fellow said... The Komodo dragon is a three-toed ungulate. And the next thing I knew, it was now, sorry, I got homework to do. Maybe you can do the dishes for me. Thanks, Pop. But instead of that, instead of Eohippus, I want to tell you about a player whose existence I only noticed just the other day. I've spent a lot of time, a crazy amount of time, learning the nooks and crannies of the baseball story. But it's so big, with so many thousands of individuals passing in and out of it, that You can still look at every page of the baseball encyclopedia, which, and this is not a brag at all, it is an artifact of a misspent youth I have more than once, and it is not something to be proud of. I don't think that I can tell you more about the career of Fred Chicken Stanley than I can about half the plays of Shakespeare. I hope I'll get around to reading them all, but I wouldn't place money on it because I've got to keep refreshing my memory on, as we'll see in a moment, fine upstanding citizens like Buck Herzog. But even diligently studying those pages, you can still miss someone or see them and fail to grasp why they might have been significant or interesting. And I'm glad of that, that I will never absorb everything, because it leaves room to be surprised. Ideally, that happens to all of us at least once a day, that feeling of, ha-ha, I've learned something new. I am smarter than I was a minute ago or at least more knowledgeable. I suppose there's a difference. If I say the name Armando Marsans, when would you guess he played? The answer is over 100 years ago. He played with the Reds, the Browns, the Yankees, as well as the St. Louis Terriers, roof of the Federal League. His major league career was brief, spanning 1911 through 1918. I'm not going to do this in my usual incredibly granular way. I'm just going to hit the highlights. And I'm indebted to some great secondary sources here. I looked at the primary ones too, but the secondary ones have done a better job at excavating this particular baseball life, including Marsan's Sabre bio, which I encourage you to read for more detail than I'm going to supply at this moment. Marsan's was born in Cuba in 1887. He was by the standards of Cuban society and mostly by that of America at the time, although occasionally doubts were raised, a Caucasian, which I hate even having to point out, but it becomes important later. He was only 10 years old when the Spanish-American War kicked off, and there were stories that, despite his youth, he helped smuggle ammunition to the Cuban forces rebelling against Spanish rule. As a result of that activity, 
or perhaps just due to the general instability in the country, his family lit out for New York that same year. You'd like to think that if that happened, he was acting at the instructions of his parents who were devoted revolutionaries. Armando, you are just a child, and no one will notice you carrying these 17 loaded rifles into the jungle. If anyone stops you, say that you are hunting squirrels to feed your poor family. And in the Disney cartoon version, the squirrels say, he was, he was, he shoots us all the time. But the opposite version is kind of amusing to think about now. This politicized child who, independent of any adult supervision, gets involved with a war and his family has to run away as a result. Armando, because of you, we have to sell the house at a loss and move to the east side of Manhattan. What were you thinking? I am glad that my father is not alive to see us disgraced by a fourth grader. Most likely when young Armando was not running guns, he was playing baseball, but he definitely started playing once he reached the United States. He found that to be his calling. His Main talent was speed. He seems to have been a glove-first outfielder, fast on defense and on the bases, who, in a good year, and for reasons we'll get into, there weren't many of them, could slap hit 300. I don't know if this is accurate because it was the dead ball era, so it might be that at a later time he would have hit with a little more authority, but even then... He didn't hit a lot of doubles or triples either, which are a sign. If you look at, say, a Sam Crawford who hit 150 triples or something like that, you would imagine that some of those long fly balls that dropped in those deep outfields would turn into home runs in more modern, smaller parks with a more lively ball. Well, he doesn't have any of those signs. It was just pure singles. He was a leith 5'10", which sounds small now, but wasn't then, not for a non-pitcher. Still, I tend to think of him as... And again, this is just pure guesswork on my part, kind of a Juan Pierre type. Mostly, people talked about Marsan's great work in the pastures. I like the description in one newspaper, Marsan's is an outfielder and a wide awake one. I like less the headline above that line, who said no good thing would come out of Cuba? Behold, Armando Marsan's. Who said no good thing would come out of Cuba? The United States coveted Cuba going back to at least George Washington. His family did go back there to Cuba after a couple of years, and he started playing professionally there on the island. He then came back to the United States and joined the American miners in 1908, played for a couple of years. And in 1911, the Reds purchased him and another Cuban player, a teammate of his, Rafael Almeida. Clark Griffith, the future owner of the Washington Senators, was the Reds' manager at that time. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he was the one to instigate the acquisition of Cuban players. It was something of a fetish for him, in a good way, I guess. In later years, he looked there for talent more than any other manager of his day, manager or owner. And then, of course, not long after his day, the United States no longer allowed Cuban players to come here for a long time, so... He was the outlier, he was the pathfinder because of his relationship with the Cuban scout Joe Cambria for decades. The unfortunate part of that relationship is that it did not extend to Cuban players of color. So it allowed for him to sign an Armando Marsans. He could be curious about a player like Marsans, but a player like Martin DeHigo, who we'll get to in a moment, Luis Tiant Sr. or Cristobal Torriente, those he would not allow himself to be curious about. And it's so odd that Clark Griffith would be an opponent of integration, which he was possibly for some very selfish reasons, like 
the fact that he was renting out Griffith Stadium to Negro Leagues teams and maybe making more money on those games than he did on regular Major League Baseball games or or the predecessor organization, American League games, I should say, when he probably knew as well as anyone or better than anyone that an alternative to that was to look at the entire universe of Latin players, whether from Cuba or other parts of the Caribbean. He had access to that insight. He just refused to act on it. Marsans, though, was on the, quote, good side of that spectrum, that very unfortunate spectrum. And in 1911, he went to the Reds at Griffith's behest. And for roughly two and a half seasons, he, Marsans, was the Reds' main center fielder. I purposely say main instead of every day because he got hurt a lot. And so he really never played a full season. He played three-fourths of seasons. He was pretty good when he did play, though, hitting 300 with a 345 on base percentage and a 358 slugging percentage in 322 career games with the Reds. This is kind of an insignificant and gerrymandered statistical category, but in the modern history of the Reds from 1900 to present, 29 players have had a career average of 300 or better in over a 1,000 career plate appearances with the team. It's a really fascinating list, and it includes a bunch of Hall of Famers, including some you might more associate with other teams like Wahoo Sam Crawford, who I just mentioned earlier, and Chick Hafey, who is in the—well, I don't know why he's in the Hall, to be honest, but if he's in, he's in as a Cardinal. And then some Hall of Famers who you definitely associate with the Reds, like Frank Robinson and Ernie Lombardi. There are also a couple of Hal's, Hal Morris and Hal Chase, and I'm not going to look this up, but I'm just guessing that the Reds are the only team with two Hal's among their career leaders. Also, when you get a chance, look up another player on the list, the outfielder Rube Bressler, 311 career hitter. He is one of the more successful mound-to-position player conversions in the history of the game, but he doesn't get talked up very much because, of course, there's Babe Ruth. Playing part-time at first base and in left field from 1924 to 1926, he hit a cool 350. Marsans is on that list, too, at the very bottom, down with Red Lucas and Chris Steins. Despite this quality profile, hitting for a good average, stealing a bunch of bases, playing great defense in the outfield, Marsan's career went off the rails in 1914 when he was just 26. The Reds were running through a manager every couple of years, maybe even every year at that point. Griffith was replaced by Hank O'Day, better remembered as the umpire who called the Fred Merkel game, the boner game against the Giants. He lasted just a season and Joe Tinker took his place as player manager. He only lasted a year as well and then jumped to the Chicago Whales of the Federal League. It is such a loss that the Federal League had such great animal names like whales and terrapins, and yet didn't do much in the logo department. It just wasn't time for that yet. The replacement for Tinker was infielder Buck Herzog, who is a pretty good player, but was a very abrasive guy who tended to wear out his welcome. You probably remember him, if you do remember him, as the guy traded to or from the Giants five times because John McCraw really liked him as a player but couldn't live with him for very long as a human being, and vice versa, or as a scrapper who Ty Cobb beat up twice in the same day. <laughs> he came back for seconds. Well, Marsans didn't like him any more than Cobb did. Herzog rode him quite a bit, and Marsans quit in a huff breaking his contract and jumping to the 
aforementioned St. Louis Terriers of the Federal League, which we remember as kind of a evolutionary dead end, but seemed like a viable alternative to the major leagues at that time. And boy, do we need a viable alternative to the major leagues right now. Marsans became an early reserve clause case, and it played out for Marsans in the same way that it did for Kurt Flood decades later. By the time all the legal arguments about his status had been sorted out and the Federal League had folded, he couldn't get back to where he had been as a ball player. He could still run, at least initially, but he couldn't hit, averaging 243 over the final three years of his career from 1916 through 1918. And we've already covered that there weren't very many peripherals to go with the batting average. Then he wasn't going to be able to play. The final blow came in 1917. I guess it was technically the penultimate blow, but this is really what ended him for good. One of the ways that the American and National Leagues killed the Federal League was to buy off some of the owners. So, when it came time for the Federal League to end, some of them got folded back into Major League Baseball. Philip DeCatesby Ball, who, if I recall correctly, was an ice magnate back before you could just get your refrigerator to manufacture ice cubes for you. Someone had to go to some frozen lake and cut out chunks of it and then preserve them in sawdust into the summer and make money distributing. It's a whole that's a different podcast, the whole ICE podcast. Similarly, at one point, Casey Stengel's dad had a job in Kansas City watering the streets so they didn't blow away because they weren't made of asphalt or concrete. They were just made of dirt. This was a very different time. But in any case, Philip DeCatesby Ball was folded into the American League as owner of the Browns, and a lot of Terriers players just got ported over onto that team. Well, mid-season 1917, the Yankees, who were not really the successful team that they would become, traded for Marsans, and they gave him a chance to win the everyday center field job, but he didn't hit very much, and in the first inning of a game that August, his spikes caught as he was sliding into home plate, and as often happens in those circumstances when your foot is planted but your body keeps going, his right ankle snapped. That was his season, of course, and when he tried to come back in 1918, the old zip just wasn't there. And so he went back to Cuba. His baseball career wasn't wholly over, though. What I love about Marsans, besides just about everything I've already told you, is that he came back to the States to play and manage in the minor leagues. He also was sufficiently free of prejudice or a sense of the taboo to play on the Cuban Stars of Harlem, part of the Eastern Colored League. This was in 1923. The big star on that team was the Cuban great Martin DeHigo. And I shouldn't say that Marsans was free of prejudice, because I, I just don't know. What I know is that Cuba has long been a mixed society, and it has had its own rules of race, but they were never stupid or evil enough to segregate baseball. So Marsans had no sense that this was something that you shouldn't do. There aren't too many players outside of the Jackie Robinson generation and, and those players immediately thereafter, like Roy Campanella or Willie Mays, who played both in the Negro Leagues and in the Major Leagues, certainly not in Marsan's time, when no one could make that jump because of the color line, but he is one of the few. He did it in the opposite order. While researching this story, I cast a wide net, as I always do, 
That means I can bring you the most detail and also ensures that it will take the most possible time to complete. And I came across an anecdote in a rather trite and occasionally racist collection from 1916. This is the single entry on baseball in the book when Miss Cheney, one of the popular teachers in the Swarthmore schools, had to deal with a boy who played hooky, she failed to impress him with the evil of his ways. Don't you know what becomes of little boys who stay away from school to play baseball? asked Miss Cheney. Yes'm, replied the lad promptly. Some of them gets to be good players and pitch in the major leagues. That's Marsan's story, in a sense, and that of every player who comes to the game. His route was esoteric, bouncing from Cuba to New York and back several times, but it's no more unlikely than that of Shoeless Joe Jackson going from a factory team into organized baseball or Mickey Mantle escaping the minors' life in the major leagues. That's the great thing about baseball. Right now, though, between major league baseball's cutting the draft, dropping minor league teams, the way the minors have been just killed dead, at least for this year, by COVID-19, and you'd think that Major League Baseball would almost be cheering the virus on in that sense, and the best efforts of the virus and the owners not to have a Major League season this year. I am disheartened that the Marsan story cannot go forward with its latest generation, at least not until next year at soonest. I don't really care who last year's champion was or who this year's would have been or will be, whatever length of season that we get. I value the people in baseball at least as much as I value the results that they create. And every time someone travels a long distance to become a major league ball player for however long and for Marsans it wasn't that long but while a championship is transient the ball player's journey is forever it's the best part of baseball and the one that's valued the least and if we lose that it doesn't matter who wins because there'll be nothing to connect to there except a logo and a uniform. Another thing I came across while researching was this inadvertently humorous epitaph from long ago. Supposedly it really exists. Here lies the body of Enoch Holden, who died suddenly and unexpectedly by being kicked to death by a cow. Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm Stephen Goldman, and I guess in the story we're living through, Rob Manfred is that cow. And if so, we're so much the poorer for it. Ask not for whom the bovine reaper moves, it moves for thee, at least it does here, in the infinite inning. to the show. Did you miss me? I definitely missed you. It felt very wrong to take some time off this event, this weekly occurrence, this meeting that we have, this rendezvous, has become so much a part of my existence. I hope you did catch the Zoom conference I did with Lincoln Mitchell and Craig Calcaterra and Frank Garitti and Tova Wang on Wednesday the 17th. If not, there is a Facebook link, link, 
I am having real trouble speaking today. I seem to have gotten rusty during that week off. I just called this podcast an occurrence. Maybe it's an occurrence like Ambrose Bierce used the word occurrence in an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. It's all, spoilers, a dream, and I can't speak because I've just been hung for undisclosed war crimes. Well, that's the episode, folks. What I was trying to articulate was that I have placed a link to the video, which now dwells on YouTube, in the Facebook group. So should you wish to watch it to join us in that conversation, however, vicariously, you can do so there. This week, I am rejoined by Jesse Spector in his semi-usual rotation spot. Somehow, a lot of weeks had intervened between when we last spoke and the present. It was not intentional. I have hereby rectified that. And then next week, we'll be back exploring other places, other personages. But I hope you enjoy our conversation. We talked a lot about the absence of baseball, the current negotiation difficulties. They did not include the latest in which they seem to, the sides seem to have resolved things and then didn't seem to have resolved things. And as I speak to you now, we are still in that same Schrodinger's season of a condition that we've been in for seeming ever. I'm not going to go over that ground again. We also talked quite a bit about his joining the revived Deadspin, which was a controversial move which opened him to some criticism online. And I wanted to give him an opportunity to respond to that because when the mob comes for you, it is never a good feeling. And Twitter is a really inadequate way to respond to that. There's one of you and many of other people. And whether their point of view is justified or not, there's no way you can shout back as loudly as they come at you. And the other part of that is since David Roth was a big part of the, I don't want to say he was part of the demise, but he was at the center of what happened and we've talked about that a great deal on this program with David. And it seemed like it would be somehow dishonest to not continue the conversation on that subject where it has since gone. As I said just a few minutes ago, I always cast a wide net when researching this show. I follow threads wherever I think they're going to take me, even if it doesn't seem like it's on the trunk of what it is that we're going to be discussing the great English poet Robert Browning, if you like macabre, Poe-like poems, by the way, that have like a plot, a story, they're not just a series of rhymes or meditations on nature, not that there's anything wrong with it if you like that kind of thing, read, and maybe you got to read these in high school as I did, Porphyria's Lover and My Last Duchess. They're not the only poems of that nature that Browning wrote. They're dark. They're little horror vignettes, but more hopeful, believe it or not, is a poem he wrote called Apparent Failure. I like that qualifier, apparent failure. And it was about seeing the corpses of fresh suicides in the Paris morgue. The morgue was apparently a very beautiful building, an architectural marvel. And in this poem, he recalls the experience of visiting that place and gazing on these bodies. And throughout the poem, he invents sort of similar to Spoon River Anthology, except in Spoon River Anthology, the corpses are speaking directly to you from their own experience. Browning is outside looking in. He invents stories why they wound up on the table or the slab. And yet I found his conclusion so uplifting in this moment in which seemingly nothing 
can go right. And certainly for those long ago suicides who had eviscerated themselves, who had thrown themselves in the Seine, everything had gone wrong. Nothing could go more wrong than doing away with oneself. And at the end, Browning steps away from them and offers kind of a hopeful prayer. I had to think on the meaning for a bit. But he wrote, It's wiser being good than bad. It's safer being meek than fierce. It's fitter being sane than mad. My own hope is, a sun will pierce the thickest cloud earth ever stretched. That, after last, returns the first, though a wide compass round be fetched, that what began best can't end worst, nor what God blessed once prove accursed. I don't know if I'm as good at interpreting poems as I am at whatever it is that I am good at, but I read that as a hopeful statement. We have not failed. We will not be condemned for our failures. We will be redeemed, or better yet, will redeem ourselves. Before I roll Jesse in here, I have one more story for you inspired by current events. But we're about half an hour in here, a little longer than that, actually, so I think it's time to take a break to wet your whistle. But don't wet the kind of whistle discussed in M.R. James's classic ghost story, Oh, whistle and I'll come to you, my lad. Or you might not like what answers when you call. And playing us out is another ghost of a tune this time. The rain comes a pitter-patter And I'd like to be safe in bed Skies are weeping While the world is sleeping Trouble heaping on Our head Over a hundred years ago, in 1917, Jerome Kern invented or co-invented the American musical, taking it away from the operatic style of earlier days into the popular vernacular. In shows like 1917's Oh Boy, for which he wrote the music, and P.G. Woodhouse of Jeeves and Worcester fame, and Guy Bolton wrote the story and the lyrics. This is a song from that. It was a hit, as best we can judge hits from 1917, Till the Clouds Roll By, this is obviously a later version sung by the great Mel Torme. And we are hearing it here and now, not only because it lived beyond the show, but because it was trending, as we kids say today, at exactly the moment that Armando Marsans fractured his ankle. So no doubt the two were always connected in his mind. At the very least, they're connected in mine, which is kind of a perversity, but, well, I'll save the rest of that thought for my shrink. You contact yours during the break, and we'll all feel much better when we return for one more tale on the other side. Or two While we've all pressed pause on so much because of COVID-19, at UConn Health, we know that your health needs never stop. Whether you have a serious health concern that you've been putting off or need to schedule a routine appointment, now is the time to reconnect with your health care providers. From virtual visits to office appointments, we're committed to providing you with the best care in the safest environment. UConn Health, here for you then, here for you now.
While we've all pressed pause on so much because of COVID-19, at Yukon Health, we know that your health needs never stop. Whether you have a serious health concern that you've been putting off or need to schedule a routine appointment, now is the time to reconnect with your healthcare providers. From virtual visits to office appointments, we're committed to providing you with the best care in the safest environment. Yukon Health, here for you then, here for you now. Anger warps everyone. Even righteous anger, earned anger, isn't a mentally healthy thing to be carrying around with you. You can't be on fire all the time without burning. Taking my cue from the Times, as I always do, last week over at Baseball Prospectus, I wrote about 10 Hall of Famers ranging in time from Cap Anson of the late 19th century to Tom Yockey, who owned the Red Sox through his overdue demise in 1976, who actively worked to make or keep baseball a segregated institution. It was my argument that their plaque should be yanked off the wall in the same way that Jefferson Davis's statue in Richmond was pulled off its plinth. And I don't want to continue that argument here. I don't want to talk about those 10 men. What I'd rather do is talk about someone who was affected by them. And to do that, we have to describe a truly disgusting human being who was connected to some of them. One of the baseball quotes I think of, and this is not too much of an exaggeration, almost every day, which is directly connected or adjacent, I should say, to Tom Yawkey, is former Red Sox pitcher Earl Wilson speaking these seemingly innocuous six words. Good things happen to some people. Mike Higgins, whose weirdly appropriate nickname was Pinky, was associated with the Red Sox as a player, a major and minor league manager, and general manager for over 20 years. He hated being called Pinky, too, so always think of him that way and disquiet his restless ghost. He was a third baseman, came up with the A's in 1930, but didn't get established until 1933. Later in life, he talked about how unsophisticated he was then, how he kept his bats close to him as he made the journey by train from Texas to Philadelphia, thinking he had to supply his own lumber and someone might steal his bats, leaving him, well, professionally emasculated. He got more sophisticated about certain things later, but not good things. He was a career 292 hitter, usually good for a dozen or so home runs a season and 65 or 70 walks. He had two seasons of driving in over 100 runs despite hitting fewer than 10 homers in both years. As you know, that's unusual. Not unprecedented, but unusual. He was great for the Tigers in the 1940 World Series, going 8 for 24 with three doubles, a triple, a home run, and three walks. It was in the losing cause, but still, he played for the Red Sox in the World Series, too, in 1946, also in a losing effort. That was part of his second stint with the Red Sox. He had been there in 1937 and 1938. In the latter year, he set a record for consecutive hits by banging out 12 straight safeties from June 19th through June 21st. He got a hit in his last at-bat in the first game of a doubleheader, went 3-for-3 three three in the nightcap, and then in the following day's doubleheader, he went 8-for-8. Eight eight. He still shares that record. 
with Johnny Kling of the 1902 Cubs and Walt Dropo of the 1952 Tigers. And all of that is moot and irrelevant and uninteresting, whereas for any other player, it would be, oh, that's kind of an interesting career that he had. Pretty successful, 292 average, little record to put on the mantelpiece or tell the grandkids about. But everything that Higgins did after vitiated his playing career. Even though the Red Sox traded him off once, Tom Yawkey, the owner from 1933 on, liked Mike. They had hobbies in common, basically hunting, drinking, and sneering at minorities. When Higgins retired, he went right into the Sox system as a minor league manager, and he worked his way up the chain from Roanoke of the Piedmont League to Birmingham of the Southern Association to Louisville, of the American Association. And let's talk about Louisville, Kentucky, for just a second. One reason that Red Sox officials such as Joe Cronin, who was with the Red Sox for about 25 years as player, player manager, 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 and general manager, gave for refusing to desegregate, and you know that they clung to the color line in all of its ugliness for longer than any other team for about 12 years or longer than 12 years after Jackie Robinson came up. This despite in 1945, Jackie Robinson himself, Sam Jethro, Marvin Williams, walking right into Fenway Park, auditioning for them and playing as well as those players could. And Williams never made it up, but Robinson and Jethro did. And obviously they were really, really good. Jethro was just older, so he didn't compile a Hall of Fame career when he finally did come up with the Braves. But the reason that Cronin retroactively cast back and that they gave at the time was that, well, our top farm team is at Louisville. And you know, in Louisville, they don't like the black people very much. So it would be really wrong of us to sign someone and then send him there as if there was no other possibility in the entire baseball universe, as if they couldn't arrange to loan that player to the Hollywood Stars or Oakland Oaks or Seattle Rainiers. No, they had to stick that player in Louisville no matter what. Therefore, it was the humanitarian thing to do to maintain their status as the most racisty racists of major league baseball teams and continue with their apartheid practices because god forbid we take a player like willie mays and expose him to a young mitch mcconnell are you nuts no alternative solution to that ever occurred to them because they didn't want one to occur to them but they had extra insurance in the form of of Pinky Higgins. You like that, Mike? Pinky, Pinky, Pinky. However recalcitrant Louisville would have been on the subject of integration, it's important to note that from 1951 through 1954, that team had a manager who was by himself a full-scale clan meeting, the Grand Dragon Pinky himself. The only way the Red Sox could have productively sent a player of color to Louisville, had they signed him, would have been to remove Higgins from the team. In 1955, they did that, but in the worst way possible, they made him the manager of the Major League team. That was the same year, 1955, that the Brooklyn Dodgers, with Robinson, Roy Campanella, Jim Gilliam, Sandy Amoros, Don Newcomb, won the World Series. That's how late this was, eight years after Robinson made his historic debut. And now, with Higgins in the hen house, they were just frozen in time. And not a good time. The Song of the South time. The Reconstruction time. The Jim Crow time. Higgins had other issues. 
He was a non-communicative, inactive manager. He preferred to set the lineup and then just sit on the bench and watch the games. According to pitcher Jerry Casale, he also had a consistent animus against Italians. Not just black people, Italians too. He, Higgins, was also inebriated most of the time. He had a very serious drinking problem, which is, strangely, what made him appealing to Yaki, who had a very serious drinking problem. Misery loves company. On the integration front, longtime Boston sports writer Al Hirschberg reported that Higgins told him, there will be no, and here he used the N-word, I will not use it, on this ball club as long as I have anything to say about it. Similarly, when a few years later, another Boston sports writer, Larry Claflin, asked Higgins about African-American Pumpsy Green, who would ultimately break the color line, Higgins called him a N-word lover and spat tobacco juice on him. Class act all the way. Through all of this, the team was at a massive competitive disadvantage. The Red Sox kept losing, and no one cared enough, or maybe they cared more, about maintaining this petty tower of white supremacy than they did winning ball games. It's nothing new, or it's nothing old, really. It's just consistent that baseball teams are vehicles for the agendas of the owners, which sometimes has nothing to do with what the team was created for. We're seeing that in our own world right now, as at latest writing, the owners are shocked, shocked that the players would want to play a week and a half more games than the owners have more recently proposed. It is very strange when the assembled owners and commissioner of baseball are pleading with the public to understand that less baseball is more baseball. Higgins' first team went 84-70, and 70, which was a surprising finish. They had basically had the reverse record in 1954, and people who should have known better were saying things like, oh, he's the new Joe McCarthy. Joe was quiet too, not the senator, the Hall of Fame manager. His teams went downhill from there, and things came to something of a crisis in 1959. Pumpsy Green impressed in spring training, and the Red Sox took him with them as they barnstormed northward. The sense was that he had made the club, and the major league color line was finally going to be completely extinct. Now, even that was an exaggeration. It was for some teams, like the Dodgers, but others had just gone in for a kind of tokenism. And then there were quotas, so it took a long time, really, to get past it completely, but the Red Sox were the last holdout, the last bastion in terms of just not having black players at all. The Phillies and Tigers, for example, were at that tokenism stage at this point. Willie Horton and Dick Allen had to come along before they had players of color so obviously valuable that their talent overwhelmed those teams' desire not to play them. So Red Sox fans were excited because even though Green was not that kind of player, not a coming star, not a great prospect, once the ice was broken, anything might happen. Mookie Betts might be waiting in the wings, as indeed he was. And yes, it was 50 years later, but still, a journey of a thousand miles starts with the smallest disavowal of prejudice. And then, Right before the season started, Higgins, who had final say on these matters because Yawkey delegated everything to him, sent Green back to the minors. 
The general manager at that moment was a future Hall of Famer himself, Bucky Harris, and he had to make these polite noises about Green wasn't really ready to play in the majors. They were doing him a big favor by having him play every day in the minors, so when the time came, he would be ready, and no one bought that. Nevertheless, it was probably a coincidence that Harris was finally able to sway Yaki to pull Higgins, fire him, that July with the Red Sox at 31 and 42, and that shortly thereafter, less than three weeks thereafter, we, Pumpsy Green, hitting 320 at AAA Minneapolis, finally made his major league debut. But Yawkey didn't want to lose his drinking buddy. Texas was a long way away. You can't have your drinking buddy in Texas in a pre-internet age. Now we can indulge our alcoholism via Zoom. But that wasn't possible then. His solution was to keep Higgins on the payroll as de facto general manager. And then, when his replacement, Billy Jurgis, didn't work out, bring him back as manager about a third of the way through the 1960 season. And that was more problematic than it was before, because in Higgins' momentary absence, the process of integration had gone haltingly forward. Pitcher Earl Wilson of Louisiana, six foot three right-hander, self-aware man, had gone down a long road to make it to the major leagues. First, he had signed with this team, the wrong team of all teams, at 18 years old. And he was signed as a catcher, but the Sox decided his arm was a much greater asset than his bat and moved him to the mound. And this is the kind of move that happens all the time, but back then, or in immediate retrospect, it was easy to suspect the Sox of putting obstacles in Wilson's way so as to delay the moment that they'd have to pretend he couldn't play. This is a version of what we've seen with police, writ small, writ unimportant, writ not as a mortal threat. But it's important to realize that once you start suspecting someone's motives, there's no bottom to the justified suspicion that you can experience. And this is a case of that. Maybe that really was the right way to develop Wilson. Maybe the Red Sox were just run by a bunch of drunken dicks. It's impossible to know, and maybe both are true. So Wilson started pitching, and it took him a while to figure out how to hit the strike zone with any consistency. And he also had to take two years off to fulfill his military commitment. There was a draft at that time. Even after he came back, the Red Sox still had their private version of apartheid going. So altogether, it took Wilson seven years to get to the point of a call-up. That happened after he started the 1959 season at Minneapolis by going 10-2. and So he was up, and he was trying to get established, and now suddenly he has a manager who he knows doesn't like people who look like him. Higgins was too smart, perhaps, to say out loud some of the words that we know that he used, but Wilson later made the point, hey, you can tell, you can tell in every interaction when someone disdains you. And again, we're talking about that justified paranoia, even when the words aren't used. What if when you're a pitcher, this is going to sound silly, but what if when the manager yanks a white pitcher from the game, he uses different body language than when he yanks a black pitcher? Maybe one shrug of the shoulders 
can be interpreted as supportive. Hey, you didn't get them today. You'll get them tomorrow. And yet another seems like a kind of a shrug. Well, that's what we expect from people like you to get beat up by the Yankees. Wilson had to deal with that for two and a half years through 1962 when Higgins was replaced again, this time by Johnny Pesky. But Yawkey still couldn't lose his pal. So, and this is really incredible, he gives Higgins another promotion, makes him team vice president, and officially now general manager. Not because he's qualified for the job. Not because he's going to make great trades, especially not for any player of color, who were at that time proliferating mightily throughout the major leagues. But because he and the owner can get wasted together. As general manager, Higgins did pretty much nothing. There are, in all the time he was de facto or official GM, just four trades to talk about. One good one. It brought Felix Mantia from the Mets. One sort of good in that he acquired Dick Stewart's power, bad glove, and bad attitude. And too bad in that they deaccessioned Pete Runnels and his 400 on base percentage. And when he became incredibly odious, dumped Stewart for a sore arm pitcher. That one we're supposed to excuse because Tom Yawkey and his wife hated Stewart so much that they insisted he be traded whatever the return for no return. It didn't matter. Just get rid of him. The team collapsed. The Red Sox have lost 100 games exactly once in the last 88 years, and that was on Pinky Higgins' watch, Pinky, 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 in 1965. Finally, on September 16, 1965, right after Red Sox pitcher Dave Moorhead threw a no-hitter against the Angels, literally that night, Yawkey finally fired his best friend. Higgins was still a man of great honor then. As the Boston Globe reported on the day of his departure, back in Texas, he is respected as one of the greatest athletes ever to come out of the University of Texas. He and his two deceased brothers have a high school named in their honor at Dallas. Is that still there? Anyone know? Higgins does not plan on retiring from baseball. He is much respected in the trade. Maybe you know how this story ends, but I'd like to tell you anyway. It's not really about Pinky Higgins. It's about Earl Wilson. Wilson was traded away from Boston after Higgins' departure under circumstances that still seem to have been racially motivated. In spring training 1946 in Florida, naturally, Wilson went to a bar with two white pitchers. The white fellas got drinks. Just like in Star Wars, the bartender said, We don't serve droids here. Except it was real life, and he didn't use the word droids. He used that same word I've avoided now three times in the course of this story. Wilson initially acceded to Red Sox management's request that he not publicly comment or even acknowledge that the incident had happened. Eventually, though, reporters started asking about it, and the story came out. Just before the trade deadline that June, the Red Sox acquired two other players of color, and Wilson knew that that was it. The club had enough of a quota that it felt it could deal him without looking like they were backing off their commitment to integration. The next day, he was sent to Detroit. He won a league-leading 22 games in 1967 and was part of the rotation of their championship 1968 team. He was never a true ace. He was just a solid member of the rotation, but he was arguably the best pitcher the Red Sox had at that moment in 1965, so the deal was pretty clearly political. 
As for Pinky Higgins, he stayed unemployed for about five seconds. Houston Astros general manager Tal Smith hired him as a special assignment scout. On February 27, 1968, he was driving, driving drunk on Interstate 20 in Louisiana. There was a work crew filling cracks in the road surface and a flagman slowing down traffic for them so they could work safely. The crew was African-American. Some sources say it was a prison work crew, but I'm uncertain of that, and it doesn't really matter. What matters is that Higgins just plowed right through them. He killed the flagman, whose name was George Killen, and he was in his 60s, and sent two others to the hospital, one in critical condition. He was arrested and charged with negligent homicide and, of course, DWI. He was 59 years old. He pled guilty and was sentenced to a four-year term. Under Louisiana law at that time, a first offender could be eligible for parole at any time given a sentence of less than five years. One suspects you don't have to be too cynical to think this about a law in Louisiana in 1968 that applications of that very forgiving rule were deeply split along racial lines. If so, then a bigot benefited from bigoted rules because Higgins was released after just two months. That was in March of 69. He was home just two days when he died of a heart attack. That doesn't quite end Pinky Higgins' story, because the evil that men do live after them, stop me if you've heard that one before, in the lives that they've touched. In his case, that extends to an uncountable number of ballplayers who were denied via his racism, and his and Yawkey's bizarre, self-defeating betrayal of the fans and their basic morality by prioritizing white supremacy over winning. So we have to ask of those men that they damaged. What happens when you're a capable person who is thwarted by history, when your ambition is denied by forces that have nothing to do with your ability to meet your goals? All your possibilities are unrealized, and not because of anything you did, but because the color of your skin means you will not be seen, except in the one idiotic, reductive way that guarantees your defeat. Higgins is dead, and some brave sports writer asks Earl Wilson for a comment, and Wilson thinks it over and says, good things happen to some people. And I've thought about what he meant for years, and I'm not going to speculate on that, except to say that to the extent the comment was self-reflective and he found satisfaction in Higgins' death, it shows the extent to which one man's toxicity can introduce a kind of poison even into his victims. I'm not faulting Wilson for feeling that way, if indeed he did. There are other ways to read what he said, and perhaps the most charitable one is about the unearned privilege that put Higgins in a position to wound so many people, which brings us back to bitterness, earned bitterness, unearned privilege. We need to understand how that works. If we do, we can understand three words. Black lives matter. May the will of the people triumph and the bell ring, proclaiming liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof everywhere in the world and in the infinite inning. I'll be right back with Jesse Spector. 
While we've all pressed pause on so much because of COVID-19, at Yukon Health, we know that your health needs never stop. Whether you have a serious health concern that you've been putting off or need to schedule a routine appointment, now is the time to reconnect with your healthcare providers. From virtual visits to office appointments, we're committed to providing you with the best care in the safest environment. Yukon Health, here for you then, here for you now. While we've all pressed pause on so much because of COVID-19, at Yukon Health, we know that your health needs never stop. Whether you have a serious health concern that you've been putting off or need to schedule a routine appointment, now is the time to reconnect with your healthcare providers. From virtual visits to office appointments, we're committed to providing you with the best care in the safest environment. Yukon Health, here for you then, here for you now. My next guest is a longtime sports writer who is presently a columnist at the new, the revived, the living Deadspin. He conscientiously washes his hands for the full 20 seconds all the time, just not when someone is looking. He's been part of this show since the very first episode. He's my friend and yours. He's judicious Jesse Spector. How are you, Jesse? Well, good would be an overstatement, but, you know, hanging in there. So I haven't talked to you since the whole pandemic happened since... Basically, as we were just saying off the air, someone kind of drove the truck of our civilization off the docks and into the bay. How has the experience of, well, living through this time over the last couple of months been for you? It's a lot of, I feel really lucky for being safe and healthy and both my wife and I being gainfully employed. I definitely got out of freelance sports writing at just the right moment. <laughs> but it stinks. I'm I'm somebody who really enjoys doing outside stuff and being cooped up inside doesn't really play to my strengths as a parent or just as a human being, but you know, making the best of it and just surviving day to day cuz that's that's all you can do. I had 3 lovely days working in the deadspin office and <laughs> been working at home ever since. The last three years, the last more than that, really, because I mean, before that, I was a, a baseball writer who was mostly working at home, you know, when I wasn't at the ballpark. So I'm, I'm familiar with the work from home life, although usually for me in the past, work from home meant work from library or work from coffee shop. And those things are no longer the case. So it is the job is, has kept me in some ways been very, very good as having an outlet to say a lot of the things that I want to say and feel like I need to say. And in other ways, it's been kind of an additional stress of, oh, yeah, I can't unplug from any of the madness of the world for more than a little while. I'm lucky that part of my job is that you know on, on the weekends, I get to play old Nintendo games on laptop <laughs> emulator and write about that. So that's a little, a nice little break. But yeah, you know, the situation that we're in, all the situations that we're in kind of touch on everything, but I've had a good opportunity to have an outlet for a lot of that stuff. And that's good. I think it is good. And I want to touch on a bunch of things that you've said, including the Nintendo thing, because I'm, I'm fascinated by that. It brought up a lot of memories for me, more of arcade games than uh, I've never owned a Nintendo. The last platform of that kind I owned was a ColecoVision going way back. I want to begin with your most recent post. You called out the baseball owes it to us to play crowd 
who are also the baseball will die if it doesn't come back this year crowd and the stop being short-sighted millionaires versus billionaires crowd. They're all the same people. And they all, in some cases, I think, have questionable motives. But before we even get to the substance of those arguments, what is it about discussions framed in absolutes like that, using words like baseball needs and baseball must, that stink of sweat and pandering and deadline filling? It just feels like there's a, a lack of perspective on a lot of it. And I, I want to be careful in saying this because I think that I've gone back and forth on this a little bit on Twitter with Jason Stark, who is one of the people that I've been reading. I've been reading Jason Stark forever. Right. I discovered him when I was in college and it's now 20 years after that. So <laughs> I've been reading him forever. And, and to be able to even engage with him on, on this stuff is a really cool thing. And I was particular in describing him in the piece that I wrote, because he was the first one that I mentioned uh, of the three pieces that I pointed to. I was particular in describing him as a well-deserving J.G. Taylor Spake Award honoree last year. I think right. he is. I just happened to disagree with him quite a bit on the need for baseball to to come back. I think that there's there's a perspective that's that's missing where you see, you know, yes, all of, you know, the NBA is going to get back to it in Orlando and the NHL will figure out. I think they still have not announced what their hub cities will be, but they have a plan in place. The NFL seems like they're going to be basically going as scheduled, I guess, in some places. I guess the state of Texas thinks that they're going to be allowing fans. And who knows? Maybe by September that will be able to be the case. I don't particularly myself see that with the current track that we're on and the way that things have been handled like they're reopening the state of texas and well gosh what what happened the state of texas endured a huge spike in coronavirus cases this is basic stuff that the united states just doesn't seem to be able to get a handle on and and let me just say arizona too which is supposed yeah. to be the safe haven or was in one of the earlier plans and florida and that's funny because it was the Arizona plan, then it was the Arizona-Florida plan, then it was the Arizona-Florida-Texas plan. I don't even know where baseball is supposed to be. <laughs> like, is the plan now that they would just play in the 27 cities? I think and, so, yeah. And fly everybody around? Yeah, let's let's put everybody in metal tubes 30,000 feet above the earth with recirculated air. That's a real good idea in a pandemic. Let's, uh, you know, let's have these guys fly around as much as we possibly can. It's bonkers to me. Like, you look at the way that this disease spreads, and, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I've certainly read enough news articles to, to understand that this is a disease that spreads often before people are even showing symptoms. And that makes it really scary. And the places that have been effective with it have had widespread testing and contact tracing and the testing here is getting somewhat better I mean, there's a couple of testing sites near where i live in new york and, and certainly you can go to a, a bunch of the urgent care facilities as well and get tests done but it's it's nowhere it's still not where it needs to be and i think that we're seeing that in in these places that are reopening and then experiencing spikes it's it's sadly predictable and the result of being a country that has steeped itself really since the election of George W. Bush in a sort of anti-intellectualism that's pervasive and 
has become polarizingly ideological and now touches on every aspect of our lives. And yeah, it, it, I think baseball, lowercase b, will be fine. And in fact, in some ways may come out of this better because there is more of a focus on Taiwanese baseball and on Korean baseball and eventually on Japanese baseball that people will get more exposure to that and appreciate that Major League Baseball is not the only baseball in the world. Is it the best baseball? No, I've watched some of those games from Taiwan and, and you know, they're not at the level of the Major Leagues. Of course they're not, but it's good. They play a good brand of baseball over there and it's too bad that America has handled it the way that we have. But what I just don't see in, in this whole rush of, you know, we, we need to get baseball back. We need to, you know, these guys need to settle their differences. Well, okay. What, what happens when it, when it goes sideways? I don't see that. And you now you even got the deputy commissioner of the NHL, Bill Daly, who was saying, you know, I don't think one or two positive tests is going to, is, is going to undermine the whole thing. Oh, really, dude? <laughs> Seems easy for you to say when you're not the one who's going to be out there, you know, putting your health on the line and your family's health on the line. And, and like, you know, just the, the inhumanity of back when when we were talking about earlier plans for baseball that you know when they were still even talking about maybe playing a full 162 a couple of months ago. And this idea with the Arizona plan, that they were going to put baseball players just like basically in a bubble for months on end with no contact with anyone in the outside world like that that's not that's not reasonable to do to people and yeah is a lot of the current fight between the union and the and and management about money yes but at the same time you know there's there's a reason for that and that reason is that they had an understanding of prorated pay which makes sense. And yeah, is it the case that the owners are going to lose some money on that? Yeah, it is because they're not going to be getting ticket revenue and they're not going to be getting concessions and they're not going to be getting all the things that that go with opening the ballparks to fans. But shouldn't it like isn't the idea here that there should be a shared loss because the players are losing half of their salaries, which are supposed to be from guaranteed contracts. And they agreed to give that up to go to prorated. And now the owners come back to the table and be like, well, you know, we're not going to be able to have fans. So we're looking for more. That's just from a, a labor and management standpoint. That's bonkers. But then the safety protocols. And I think that the players have every right to be concerned when one, when management's asking them to sign waivers, acknowledging their risk and basically absolving management of any kind of responsibility. I wouldn't wouldn't want to go for that. And I think that the Major League Baseball Players Association is one of the most powerful unions, if not the most powerful union in the United States. And they owe it not just to their membership, but I think to the wider labor movement to be taking a stand here to say, yeah, management A needs to stick to its word, but B, we demand a safe workplace. And, you know, health protocols that make sense and that will treat us humanely. I, I think that that's, that to me is, it's wild. And, and we could discuss this 
on and on forever the the millionaires versus billionaires aspect of it and the fact that the general public tends to side with the billionaires and and how much of that is because player salaries are public information and owners financial books are not and that they can go out and claim losses on whatever and that the ricketts family can come out and say this is going to be you know losses of biblical proportions yeah you know what you can handle it there are a million aspects to this and you've raised many of them and i i think too the the union aspect of it and the union's obligation to hold them to the agreement that they made is important and not just for this minute but because the owners have, depending on how you want to break things down, just from the birth of the modern union, they have a 50-year or 50-year-plus history of being utter bastards when it comes to grinding the players for every dime. And so for the owners to say, hey, give us a break on 2020, we'll remember in 2021, you'd have to be a sucker to go for that. I'm sorry. And so if they if they have a paranoia about setting precedents about further reductions that everyone swears won't get thrown in their face later, but almost certainly will. I understand that. But one thing that I wanted to bring up, you talked about the health aspect. Put the money aspect aside. Over the weekend, Bradford William Davis of the New York Daily News had this great story mm -hmm. in which he called around to those responsible for public health in each of the major league cities and asked, so what has Major League Baseball communicated to you about their plans? And I'm exaggerating very slightly, not by much, though, that the most common response was plan. So I, at least reading that, start doubting their sincerity about anything, whether it's player health or even starting up again. Yeah. I, what reason have they given us to believe that they are on the level in any aspect of their public dealing. I mean, these are the same people who put together stadium deals using public money and then claim that they're going to, you know, reinvest in the community. And, and does the community see dime one of any of that most of the time? I mean, they often just wind up going back and 20 years later, here's a, we need another ballpark. I mean, right. we, we can't possibly we can't possibly continue to play in this outdated facility. We're going to need another, another bond issue, even though this one isn't even paid off yet. I mean, it's uh that's who we're dealing with here. And I think that there's real reason to be distrustful of, of whatever it is that ownership has to say. And, and I think that that can, that can come down to something as simple as look at the song and dance that the Oakland A's just went through about paying their minor leaguers, something that was going to cost them, I think, $2 million to pay their entire minor league system for the year. And they're owned by the heir to the gap fortune. I think John Fisher can, can handle it. And lo and behold, he went digging around in his couch cushions after there was enough public pressure to be like, you're an idiot. And lo and behold, oh, he came up with the money. So... It's a group of people, It's a and, and in one case a corporation, in the case of Atlanta, it's a group of, of 30, 30 people slash corporations who are used to being able to get what they want through sheer force of will and money. And in this case, yeah, is there is a money aspect, but it's not just about the money. And they can dress it up uh, and, and they've... They've tried so hard. I, I think it was Mike Cassisa who had the uh, 
the breakdown that, you know, they were going to do half a season at 50% pay and that then they offered, you know, 48 games at 75% pay and then 77 games at 33, whatever it was, but that it all worked out to 33% of pay or whatever it was. And that they've basically presented the same financial offer over and over and over again. It's like, you guys have to recognize that, yeah, you're, you're going to take a hit here and you can't privatize the gains and socialize the losses in every aspect every single time and that there is some public sentiment against you and i think that there's also from the reaction that i had to the piece that i wrote about maybe we don't need baseball this year that people are are kind of hip to that that like yeah there's a lot going on right now and yeah do we miss baseball sure but does it absolutely it's a want not a need and that this is a canceled season this time. And I think, you know, just to, just to go back to that original premise, and I think part of where, and, and I haven't talked to Jason about this, but I think part of where it stems from for him and for a good amount of people is the memory of 1994 and what happened then. And this is not 1994. This is not a situation of players and owners' own making. This is act of God. And that it's not just baseball that it's affected, but that it's every aspect of American life that's affected. And I think that that's something that that really does set this apart. And that it's not just like, oh, you know, baseball is going to have to make amends when it comes back. It's a case where there might not be a way for baseball to figure out an appropriate way to come back this year. Because... You look at what's happening in some of those states, you know, in and and that was another part of it. You know, you were going to do this Arizona plan. Well, that sounds nice. But, you know, what what were you really going to do? I mean, the Diamondbacks play a lot of their night games with the roof closed because it's still so hot. If you were going to put all 30 teams in the Phoenix area and play at the spring training sites there, those are all open air. Right. And, and that would have been a real physical grind. On the players, and you think about the way that you know the Texas Rangers, for so many years, would fall apart every August. Sort of a different version of of the Rockies effect, you know, where where your home ballpark kind of hurts your team after a while, and you would have seen that league wide. And there might not be a way to physically make this happen in a safe manner, and that's okay. If it winds up being that the public perception is that it's about money, well, so it goes. And I, and I think that in a lot of ways, as a general public, we've developed a bit of a closer mentality in, in some of the worst ways possible of being able to forget one day and move on to the next because... <laughs> it's a great analogy. Yeah, it's... You know, we, we just went through this week of... I don't want to say unprecedented, but certainly in my lifetime, I've never seen protest on a scale like we've seen over the past week, week and a half now and continuing. And, and really a lot of that has put the ongoing pandemic out of mind for a lot of people. It's like, no, 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 that's, (laughs) that's still happening. But you think about if baseball can't get back until next spring, 
obviously the election is in November, but how many things happen just between, how many things have happened between March and now? How many things will happen between now and October or between October and Pitchers and Catchers 2021? It's not something where I think there's going to be like a longstanding resentment of, oh, all, all of you guys, you guys are just greedy and that's why you didn't have baseball this year. And, and I can't, can't believe that you would undo the national pastime like that. It's, I just don't see that kind of reaction from the public at this particular time in where we're at as a collective psyche. It's not the same as 94. And, and I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. That and, you know, if you don't have a 2020 season and you just push it back and say, all right, we're going to just come back fresh spring training of next year. Well, that gives you a chance to actually have a full actual kind of standard season next year where with these leagues that are restarting, there's going to be kick on effects. The NBA isn't going to be finishing up until the middle of October, if everything goes according to plan, which is still a very big if with their whole Disney World plan, which I think that there's, you look at the state of Florida and who's running the state of Florida and what some of the details have been about the way that the state of Florida has been even reporting its numbers. And the numbers that they are reporting have been trending upward. What's going to happen there between now and the middle of July when they're supposed to restart NBA camps and regular season? I just, they're, they're going to be in a situation where the NBA finals are scheduled to be happening in October around the time that the NBA season would be starting. And, you know, the 2020, 2021 NBA season is going to be compressed in some way, shape or form as a result of all of this and who knows what else is going to happen. And there's, there's just, there's so many unknowns and so many things and so many ways that it can go wrong that you look at this and you say, this is all to salvage a percent. Like the only reason to do this there, there's two reasons. One is to provide a distraction, which whoop de doo. We're, we're going to make some people, forget about their troubles for a couple hours. Well, you're not because... And it would be counterproductive. I don't think this is the time for distraction in a way. Yeah. Distraction would be self-indulgent. It is. But, you know, even the places... Like, you watch you know, you know, watch the games with without fans in the stands, whether it's baseball in Asia or soccer in Europe. It is undeniably weird. I've talked about this on the show a number of times, but... If you remember, you may not quite remember this, but when the Braves were at their absolute nadir in the late 1980s, they had won a little bit under Joe Torre. They won a division title mm -hmm. in the early 80s. And then, of course, Bobby Cox came back and Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin and John Smoltz and all those guys. We know about all that. But in between, they were just super bad. And they, if the say the Mets went down there when the Mets were good, even when they were good, for a day game in 1987 or 88 or something, no one would go, but they wouldn't adjust the crowd mics. So the crowd mics were, the gain was still turned way up. So the novelty of it was you got to hear Dale Murphy make his dinner plans in between at bats because you could pick up every sound on the playing field and in the dugouts. But the vibe was certainly different. And the novelty of that wore off 
real fast. I mean, I'm not saying you, you can't have baseball without a crowd, but it will be very, very different, very antiseptic. James isn't as well-remembered as Louis Armstrong, but my, he had a style all his own, a high-quality style, but tastes change, and big band long ago gave way to other forms of music, just as rock and roll is now fading away, and after 50 years or so, yielding the stage, Harry, of course, yielded his life as well as the stage, that's the way things go, and that's a morose thought, so let's get out of here before I say any more, except that... This is the 1941 song, My Silent Love, sung by Dick Haynes, who was part of the organization then before going on to the movies, at least transiently. It was originally a hit in 1932. Harry James and his orchestra picked it up. Haynes crooned it. And that's all she wrote. I don't know about your silent love. I prefer my loves on the verbose side, but to each their own and to own their each break, which we will take now, use it as you please, and we will see you on the other side with more conversation. While we've all pressed pause on so much because of COVID-19, at UConn Health, we know that your health needs never stop. Whether you have a serious health concern that you've been putting off, or need to schedule a routine appointment, now is the time to reconnect with your healthcare providers. From virtual visits to office appointments, we're committed to providing you with the best care in the safest environment. Yukon Health, here for you then, here for you now. While we've all pressed pause on so much because of COVID-19, at Yukon Health, we know that your health needs never stop. Whether you have a serious health concern that you've been putting off or need to schedule a routine appointment, now is the time to reconnect with your healthcare providers. From virtual visits to office appointments, we're committed to providing you with the best care in the safest environment. Yukon Health, here for you then, here for you now. I was thinking a lot about, as you were talking about Jason Stark and how you discovered Jason Stark back when you were in college. And it's funny because the person I associate in that period for me is Peter Gammons. And they were both in newspapers at that time. Peter Gammons was at the Boston Globe and he was also in Sports Illustrated where he had like a weekly rumors column. And I bonded more to Peter Gammons. This is even before he was on ESPN all the time with Baseball Tonight. Because Jason Stark is, I think, and everyone says he's the nicest guy. I am not trying to say anything bad about Jason Stark at all. But Jason Stark is an enthusiast. He's someone who loves the game 
and happens to have gotten a job in it and has been very successful at that. And so in that period, a typical Jason Stark item in a column would be, hey, Steve Jeltz hit three doubles in a game for the Phillies in one inning last night. Isn't that cool? Who else hit three doubles in an inning for the Phillies? And then at the same time, Peter Gammons might write, according to most general managers, the Phillies are trying to trade Steve Jeltz because he sucks. And I'm more bonded to that guy who was more realistic. And I want to do this at some point. I want to bring up all those Boston Globes rumors pages and find out how many of them actually turned into anything, because I believe probably 99% of it was garbage. But at least it gave you a forward-looking thing. It was a movie trailer. It was something to think about. Now now that Twitter has blown out that so much that it, it's not even worth devoting brain space to because everything is a rumor all the time, every minute, and you could just dissolve your your entire consciousness in that. But it seems to me, and this goes back to the very beginning of this conversation when you brought up parenting, when my kids were little and say one of them got overtired and threw a tantrum, my my wife would have a habit of saying to the child, again, keeping her own cool, but saying, what you need to do is you need to stop yelling at us and go to bed. And I, as a spectator at that moment, would think, no, the child does not need that. It may be objectively that the child needs that, but when you say you need, what you're actually saying is I want. I want to be done with this argument with a six-year-old. I want the six-year-old to be asleep so that I can go back to doing whatever I was doing, possibly reading a book or drinking a lot. I don't know. Not that my wife drinks a lot. When somebody like Jason Stark says, baseball, don't do this. Don't screw it up for yourself and for all of us. You need to come to an agreement, which really in this context, as we've been saying throughout, comes down to the players need to fold. Because the way the agreements are structured is the players made their concession on prorated pay. Remember, they're contracted for a year. They're not contracted per game. If they were contracted per game, then Aaron Judge would be broke from all the days he spent on the DL. It doesn't work that way. You're paid a yearly salary, virus or not, and they gave on that. In that same agreement, then said to the owners, you got the keys. We've made this agreement on salaries. Here are the keys, or you already had the keys. You press start when you want. It's all on the owner's side now. It is the owners who said we have to come back and reopen those agreements. We are not willing to use our keys. So when somebody like Jason Stark says you have to do this, what he's really telling, and I see this all the time on Twitter, maybe because I follow people like Sean Doolittle, who people perceive as responsible, saying, please make an agreement. We need baseball. We need baseball. It's not like that. It's not up to him. It is purely on the other side. That's exactly the exchange that I had on Twitter. It was about somebody else's tweet that I was like, yeah, there's a difference between baseball needs to come back and I want baseball to come back. Those are those are different concepts. And somebody somebody responded Another another writer who doesn't write sports, she wrote, you know, I thought this was something that we all learned when we were six years old in the grocery store. And I was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and this is a frequent topic of conversation in our house, the concept of of need versus want. And, and yeah, it, it very much does go into that. And I think that, I think Sean Doolittle and the, the guy who I actually pointed to today in, in Dallas Braden, you know, just say who are making the points of that it's not just the finances. And I really think that the players are never going to win in the court of public opinion on on the finances, even though they should. Because even though 
there and 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 there are a lot of players who like how many careers aren't even going to happen based on the games that have already been missed how many players would have would have played the one or two games or just gotten their shot to make it happen and then made something of it in April May or June of 2020 how many guys time was that to arrive in the major leagues and and make it happen how many careers are going to be you know, how many players that we saw last year are we never going to see again who, you know, might have had a chance this year? It it sucks for them. It sucks. Like, this is something that these guys put their whole lives into. And for the owners, what this is, is an investment that is going to eventually pay off for them no matter what. Every single one of them who winds up, you know, they'll either die rich and, and still owning the team, or they will eventually get out of it and sell for way, way, way more than they bought in to the tune of billions of dollars. They will be fine. This is something that the players, not every player is in a situation of never, ever have to work a day in their life again after this is over. You know, there's, there's a lot of guys who are making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year uh, you know, half a million dollars, I guess half a million dollars is, is the league minimum. Um, but you know, that's, that's a lot of, a lot of players who are league minimum or close to it or under a million dollars. And, you know, I, I can't stand it when, when we talk about, oh, free agent X is more likely to sign, uh, in Texas because there's no state income tax there. Well, you know, the, the taxes do take a bite out of that. And, and when you look at that, what you earn over the, and what you take home over the course of a three to four year major league baseball career. Yeah. It's enough to set you up to, to have, you know, a good life. And, but you're going to go wind up parlaying that into selling cars or selling real estate or, you know, whatever it is that you need to do to, to have a career after this, you know, some kind of, you know, consulting or whatever it is that you're going to do motivational speeches there's going to like you're going to have to continue working to provide for yourself this is a job and it's a really well-paying job and it's a dream job and and yeah like yes the the old line i would do it for free well yeah you would but there's also so much that you've put aside in order to pursue this and to do this and and the work that you've put in to do this and the fact that the fact that you are getting paid an obscene amount of money does not obscure the fact that the people who are employing you are making even more money and have it locked in no matter what happens to them they are assuming no risk whatsoever and they would like to assume even less than no risk whatsoever even in this truly unprecedented case where everybody's got to take a hit and they don't want to. And, and that's what it's boiling down to for the owners is that they, they've got the biggest case of the don't want us that you've ever seen. That's absolutely true. And even in Field of Dreams, a movie, parenthetically, that I greatly dislike, but even Moonlight Graham says, screw it. I had my one inning 
and goes off and becomes a doctor because at some point you're throwing good time after bad. And that's a choice that a lot of players have to make. We'll never know, right? All those minor leaguers that got released earlier this month, chances are they were just fringe guys. Chances are that there were no diamonds in the rough in that crowd. But one of them, I would think, one of them, just on a percentage basis, was someone who had spring training finished, had the minor league season begun might have had a good 20 at-bats or a good 10 innings that would have changed people's opinion of him. But now he's unemployed, and since baseball, in yet another track of this that we don't have to get into, is going to demolish several bits of the, the minor leagues, over 40 teams, they may not find the slots to pick up those at-bats or those innings again. And in any case, the time may have passed. Time is the one thing that doesn't get replaced in all this. But I wanted to ask you about, you alluded to this earlier, a more frivolous aspect of what you've been doing. You've been replaying old Nintendo sports games, including, as I said, some I enjoyed in the arcades as a kid, like head-to-head tennis. And for those who may not remember this, they used to set them up with adjoining cabinets. And so you could play against somebody else on your own screen. RBI Baseball, same thing with its little midget players with actual player names circa 1995, excuse me. No, 1985. I I misspoke. I wondered if you remembered, this was a game I liked almost as much. It wasn't part of the Nintendo series, but there was an arcade baseball game from exactly the same period called World Series, the season. It had a lot of variant names, but it was just very generically titled World Series. And it had a couple of unique features. And one of them was that instead of a standard joystick, it had a couple of these little wands that were under tension. So if you're going to swing the bat, you pulled it back. And as the pitch came in, you let it go. And there was a very satisfying snap to it. And pitching works sort of the same way. But the coolest thing about it for we young future sabermetricians was that, at least in principle, it didn't always really work, but it remembered your stats. You'd give it your initials and your birth date, and you could come in and pick up a game in process. And I wondered if that was one that you've ever tried or remembered. No, that's, uh, I don't want to say that I never that I never played it, but I, I don't remember that game specifically. I do remember an arcade game experience where there was like a bat that you would pull back and, and thwack a thing. Um, it was kind of metal, right? Yeah. In fact, it, you know, just, just before the pandemic hit, we took the kids out to, in lieu of a birthday party this year, because our kids' birthdays are six days apart. You know, they're, they're two years and six days apart. And they decided this year, rather than, than have a party that they, they wanted to go to an indoor water park in the Poconos, and and we had a great time. It was like seriously like a week before all you know all hell broke loose, um, so I feel like we were lucky to to be able to squeeze that in. But they had like outside the water park area, there was an arcade, and there was like a little kind of baseball game where like a a, a ball bearing sort of marble thing would roll down a chute, and you would pull back the bat and thwack it and then uh you know kind of a, a ski ball-y sort of thing where the ball would go into a hole and if it went into to this hole it was a triple and if you hit it over the fence and and into a hole there it was a home run and a double and, and all that and then based on how many runs you could score before you made three outs you would get x number of tickets to then go 
uh, redeem at the store. And, and this whole, the whole thing was like Kid Vegas. <laughs> but it, that little thwacky baseball game did take me back to an experience that I had. But I remember it being more something similar to that kind of pinball, skee-ball sort of deal than an actual video game. But I didn't, I didn't have like a neighborhood arcade growing up. Like we would go. So where did you get your drugs? <laughs> I lived in New York City. Um, <laughs> I may be casting unfair aspersions on arcade owners and operators, but I know for every one of them that was in my neck of the woods, it was, hey, the one over in North Brunswick got some Ms. Pac-Man machines and you can get Coke in the back. <laughs> Not that I've ever done that, but that people were just very aware of, of that. It had that dual function. Isn't that what Ms. Pac-Man's doing that whole time? Just gobbling up? <laughs> She's just doing lines the whole time. The machine you're talking about is a very is, is a very old timey kind of concept. One of the reasons I used to enjoy going to Disney World or Disneyland is that on Main Street, before they kind of gutted all those buildings and just made them all uniformly retail, they used to have until fairly recently, by which I mean like twenty years, they had an actual penny arcade. And I remember had that. Yeah. These legit old timey machines. I definitely played a baseball y kind of game there when I was six years old. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And it was a lot of fun to play it. Those games were still pretty entertaining. And there was like kind of a skee-ball variant. And there was another one where you knock down targets. So it was pretty cool. But this one in the arcade, the the thing that, that I, I really enjoy and still call to mind to, and I haven't played this game in, however since the 1980s, is that the vocal track for the umpire had the expected enthusiasm for a strike call, <laughs> just like a real umpire strike. But if a pitch was out of the zone, he would say, ball. With just a disdainful, totally disinterested, almost disgust, which when you're in the eighth inning of a four-hour Yankees-Orioles game, it's a very appropriate response. <laughs> and I will sometimes sit in front of the television going, ball. There you go. I will send you a link to this. There is online play of this game, and you will find yourself saying, ball. Ball. Strike. Ball. Ball. Yeah. Strike. Ball. My arcade experience really was the bowling alley. They had like a couple of games there. Uh, and I, I think I think I also, because you predate me a little bit. It's like, a polite way of putting it. You're not that much older th than I am. Like you said, you, you were ColecoVision and I, I was uh, like my older cousins had the Atari when, when I visited them. And that's that's kind of the same era. And then like, so they're like, yeah, my cousins are four and eight years older than I am. And I still remember playing their Atari when we visited them in Colorado when I was a kid. But yeah, then I had, you know, the first video game and that I had was Nintendo. I had a PlayStation at one point and, you know, really wound up using it more as a DVD player than an actual video game. Although I did play one season of MLB, uh, I think it was MVP Baseball 2003, I want to say, three or four, where I made Kevin Jarvis a 30-game winner for the World Series champion San Diego Padres. <laughs> He ought to send you a signed picture or something. That's we've been doing this three years, and that is the yeah. first Kevin Jarvis mention on this podcast. Won so thirty games. <laughs> congratulations, Kevin Jarvis, wherever you are. You know the the well, that is not where I intended to go, and this is a very close ended anecdote. But when I was in junior high school, I was on the bowling team. I wasn't very good at that point. I got better, but a friend of mine 
and I used to go practice once a week after school, and then periodically we would break because they had a couple of arcade machines. They had this head-to-head karate game that we used to play all the time, and there was a kid who seemingly had nowhere else to go and just lived in that arcade section, and he wouldn't play. He would just wait for us. I don't think he was waiting for us particularly, but he was always there, and as we were playing the game, he would say, Juice. And I've always wondered how he knew, because I was 13. I didn't have a beard or anything. It's just some people have an intuitive Nazi sense, like Spider-Man has a spider sense. So when last we spoke, you hadn't yet joined the revived Deadspin. That was a possibility, but it wasn't a sure thing. And Jesse, well, I, I know I'm this... I'm just curious how you're segueing from <laughs> teenage Nazi to my new job. <laughs> no, that is not teenage intentional at all. Nazi. You just... No, I'm not I'm not trying to tie those things at all together. I just reassociate very well. And you say arcade and bowling and I think not I think not I'm I you know not not to like be like Woody Allen in is it okay? I don't know if it's even okay for me to make a a Woody Allen reference, but there's a scene in Annie Hall where he's complaining that somebody said did did you do that? Jew do that? Jew do like I'm not that paranoid, yeah. but in that instance <laughs> There was someone just standing behind me as I'm putting quarters in a machine going, Jew, Jew, Jew. I don't know what that was about. It's, there's one of those those things that, like, if you have as good a memory as I do, the ghosts are alive for you in a very real way going on literally or almost 40 years later. You're going, what was that kid in 1983 all about? It's Maybe. weird, Jesse, in that things that should not make me unhappy as an adult married man with some semblance of a career and mm-hmm. kids and everything else. And periodically I will find myself going, man, that day at the bowling alley sucked. Maybe it, maybe it, it is an Annie Hall situation. And he was saying, lewds, lewds, lewds. He was, he was trying to sell you some, some quaaludes. <laughs> he, he was trying to sell. It wasn't, I don't think, I think the big business was in the larger arcades. They had like three <laughs> machines, but it's not, it's not impossible. So clean segue, having no Nazis <laughs> in this discussion at, at all. We're not, no, no Nazis. Vor der Kaserne, vor dem großen Tor, steht eine Laterne und steht sie noch davor. Dort wollen wir uns wiedersehen, bei der Laterne. Wollen wir stehen wie einst Lily Marlene, wie einst Lily Marlene. I said no Nazis and I meant it. Marlena Dietrich was German, but she was no Nazi. In fact, she was about as anti as you could get. Touring the world for the USO, there are pictures of her in American uniform visiting the various cantonments and camps just behind the front, sometimes very near it. I think she covered every continent in which the war took place. She recorded this song for the American government as a way of reclaiming it from the Nazis, and it became a surprise hit. I'm sure that you are unsurprised that we are about to segue into a break. So if your pack is too heavy to hold, put it down in the mud and cold throw a salute towards Lily Marlene, and then rejoin us to conclude this episode on The Other Side.
While we've all pressed pause on so much because of COVID-19, at Yukon Health, we know that your health needs never stop. Whether you have a serious health concern that you've been putting off or need to schedule a routine appointment, now is the time to reconnect with your healthcare providers. From virtual visits to office appointments, we're committed to providing you with the best care in the safest environment. Yukon Health, here for you then, here for you now. While we've all pressed pause on so much because of COVID-19, at Yukon Health, we know that your health needs never stop. Whether you have a serious health concern that you've been putting off or need to schedule a routine appointment, now is the time to reconnect with your healthcare providers. From virtual visits to office appointments, we're committed to providing you with the best care in the safest environment. Yukon Health, here for you then, here for you now. ask you this and it, it may be painful and awkward and if yeah. it is i i apologize but i i need to bring this up Everything because you're is, so you're well that's what i'm saying right you're my friend though and i respect you and you've been respectful enough of the audience of this program that you've invited them into some of the anguish that you felt in the years and you alluded to this even earlier today since you left your longtime job at the sporting news so on your behalf, it hurt me to see other people, including some other writers, take shots at you for taking your current position. And I assume you're aware of those things. And I wonder how has that reaction been from your point of view? It wasn't enjoyable. You know, <laughs> some of it was a decent amount of it. Uh, you know, I, I'm able to brush off a lot. Because there's, and I know that I've certainly been in a position where I've criticized people unfairly over time, where I didn't know their whole situation, and and I get that, and I I get why, I get why people might be angry at at various things, and I I don't take a lot of it personally. Some of it is, and some of it is you you find out who your friends are, but yeah, I mean I I knew I I wasn't. I wasn't blind to this when I was going in and taking the job. I knew what went down there last year. And I, I haven't talked about it too much publicly. I, I, I did talk to people who had worked, friends who had, who had worked at the previous incarnation of Deadspin and who had, who had left their job. And I think that when I said that they were encouraging, I think that they were, I, I think that maybe I could have chosen a better word. And, and I don't know, I don't remember exactly what I wrote, but I think that people took it that, that I was saying that they encouraged me to take the job. I, I think it was more that they encouraged me as a person and that I went in with, with my eyes open. And, but to, to acknowledge that no, I was not crossing a picket line, that, that this was, and, and I wouldn't have. I, you know, there were, there were a lot of things about it. I would not, had, had it been a strike, I would never, I would never have done it. It was important to me that it wasn't that they took these jobs and made them non-union jobs. It's the first time in my life that I've been in a union and, and I took that very seriously. You know, I grew up in a, you know, my mom's a teacher, so I grew up in a union home and I've taken it seriously. I've become part of the union and, you know, joined one of the union committees. And, and that's something that means a lot to me to be able to, to do that and to work with, other folks in in the onion union which we're a part of 
but yeah, no, the, the criticism, it was a lot at first. And as time has gone by, I think that, you know, some of it's dissipated just because people don't necessarily have the energy for it all the time. And also, I think that people are seeing through the work that I'm not doing stuff that's a departure from who I am. It's a lot of the stuff that I was doing, quite honestly, a, a lot of the, the same kind of stuff that I was doing and really enjoyed when I was a deal breaker. Well, the thing about Deadspin, and you know, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of school when I say this, that the whole stick to sports controversy was, it was poorly stated by management, for sure, but also misconstrued. Yeah, do, do I need to have things tied to sports? Yeah, everything does need to have some kind of sports tie. But, you know, last week when Trump said when the looting starts, the shooting starts, that went back to the Miami police chief in the 1960s who first said when the looting starts, the shooting starts. I took that and ran with it on on the grounds of that Muhammad Ali was in Miami at the time and, and used that to look at the policing and the harassment that then Cassius Clay took from police, you know, in a still very heavily segregated area, you know, where he would be stopped when he was doing his road work on the highway. And, you know, they would call his manager and say, oh, you got a fighter named Clay? He says he's with you. And they'd be like, yeah. And then they would let him go. But he was basically being stopped for running while black. And that that was part of his growth into becoming the man who was Muhammad Ali. If they really meant stick to sports, and I've had so many people who don't, who aren't necessarily sports fans, you know, I've had people say to me, what are you doing? You're a sports writer. You know, what are you doing now when there's no sports? I'm like, well, I'm still writing stuff. I'm writing stuff that is tied to sports, but not necessarily about games. I don't need games happening to do to do my job and, you know, to be able to, you know, last week, write about, you know, the NYPD was beating people up outside 215 Montague street in Brooklyn, where the Brooklyn Dodgers offices were and Jackie Robinson signed his contract. And my dad wrote the historical plaque on the building when he worked for a bank that opened up a branch in that building. So you've got that happening in New York while in LA, the LAPD, without UCLA's permission, turned Jackie Robinson Stadium from a COVID testing site into a field jail for protesters. That's That's got a sports hook, doesn't it? Jackie Robinson is, is certainly a, a sports figure. I'm getting to work with editors who I did work with at the Daily News, and that was also a huge part of me taking this job was, you know, that I was working with editors who I knew and trusted and who had a fierce streak of editorial independence about them and honestly told them like look I I don't have any qualms about where I'm at in my career and if push comes to shove I'm willing to to just walk out the door too because I'm you know I'm foot out the door of this industry as it is and some people said well you didn't have to take this job you you could have just taken your foot out the door I'm like well I still, you know, I thought about it and, you know, I was at a point where I was thinking maybe I'm out of things to say. And and I think that through having this opportunity, it it's opened up avenues of it's it's a different channel for me. And I think that even in these three months 
that I've been able to grow as a writer. It was something that I looked at as an opportunity and that I knew that there would be pushback and I knew that there were drawbacks and I knew that, you know, some people would be pissed off about it. And, and all of that was true. I don't think you owe anybody an apology. I don't think that at all. And I do think certain things have been misconstrued. I need to say myself, I collected a few checks through our mutual pal David Roth at the old Deadspin, but that's not work I was financially dependent on. And it was just a, a fun thing to do with a site that I liked and with a person, David, that I liked. So I don't think that that compromises my judgment. I did like the site as it was. I wouldn't say I was the number one fan or checking it 15 times a day. If they posted something that looked cool, that's I read that like many other sites. I also think, and I saw people use not just towards you, but towards others who have joined up the word scab. And I think that that is misapplied in that those writers left. They're gone. As you said, there's no picket line. There is no one's job that you are taking. That site was dormant for a period of time after some ham-fisted attempts to revive it. And all those people have either moved on or are in the process of moving on or are making plans to do something hopefully bigger and better. And so I do not fault that. I do think, I wish that had they gone to revive this, they had revived it under a different name or done something else that didn't provoke direct comparisons with what had gone before, and I think it would have been better off for everybody, including you, because then you your work could just be seen as your work as opposed to replacing Drew Maggery's work or, or whatever. Yeah, uh, you're. <laughs> I'll just I'll I'll leave it at that. That you're not alone in that feeling that <laughs> that renaming it would have been a, a good way to go. But yeah, I I think that the other the the criticism that if there is a criticism that's that's bothered me like i think that you know people who have said scab whatever you don't get it and and you're not making an effort to get it that's one thing what's what what did rub me the wrong way was people saying oh yeah this this just reads like they're just trying to be a dollar store version of the old deadspin and you know what i am a lot of things and i'm stupid in a lot of ways (laughs) i am not stupid enough to think that I could do what David Roth does. I, you know, he's, he's one of those guys that, that I read and I'm just like, all right. Yeah. Wow. That's uh <laughs> I feel the same way. I love him, but he makes it hard for me sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like he's, he's unique. And if I tried to copy him, I'd be making a huge fucking mistake. And like, I wouldn't, you know, I, I do suffer from imposter syndrome a lot of the time. And, yep. you know, so that's that's not something new. But, like, the idea that, like, that's a guy that I would try to be copying and writing his voice, I'm not that dumb. And really, like, there's a couple of writers out there who are like that for me and where it's just like, all right, yeah, you're you're doing a thing. And, and I could never. I could never even attempt that voice or that style. Yeah, he. It's like it's him and Spencer Hall, pretty much. Uh, Spencer Hall, the great college right. football writer who was my boss for a while. Yeah, he's a freaking genius. Like as a writer, like I, I marvel at the way that he ties things together and and, and the style and voice that he has, and, and he's done. You know, so yeah, I'm, I've been thinking about him a lot lately, and like how that guy could be out of work and I am in work is mind-boggling to me. There's a reason I'm not at Vox anymore either. I think the thing that you're hitting on that people objected to or that 
and again, I think the term is unfair and misapplied, but and I discussed this with a couple of people who use it, but scab is that and again, I, I'm going to I'm just saying I'm presenting this, but I am not endorsing this at all, mm-hmm. that, well, the people who have signed up are facilitating the plan that Jim Spanfeller and the other guys wanted to have to dumb down the content. And it doesn't seem to me that at least in all cases, certainly not in your case, as you said, that it's been dumbed down. You're not doing the David Roth thing because David is not there anymore and Drew is not there anymore. This is like the awkward thing about that is that they bought this publication that had these voices who over time grew accustomed to doing this thing. And it was a smart thing. I don't have a look inside their stats, but my understanding of it was, and this is consonant with my experience as someone who is an editor who has worked in the sports journalism field or the online version in particular for forever, that a lot of sports content now is commodity product. And even things that we used to do at Baseball Prospectus that did huge numbers like transaction analysis, it all happens on Twitter now. And you don't need to come to a site 24 hours later as well as we might do it, as entertaining as we might do it. As much as I encourage everyone to come in and click those articles, if Mike Trout is traded for Joe DiMaggio or whatever happens, like it's all going to happen in a matter of seconds online, all of that breaking down of stuff. So the article is redundant. What's not redundant at least in my sense, is hopefully what you do, hopefully what I do. As you know, I've made a whole career in telling those same kinds of stories. Here's what's happening today. And oh, wow, it happened. Well, I'll use Joe DiMaggio again. Happened 20 years ago or 50 or 100 years ago to Joe DiMaggio. I did that today at BP because I talked about Cristobal Torriente, who is a Negro Leagues player. It's about today. That's it. That's the hook. That's the part that's not commodity product. And so... They had this possession, this site that had this wonderful, unique voice, and they went out of their way to kill it to do something that is more middle-of-the-road commodity-oriented. And for me, I would be content to say, again, if you weren't there, there's a special carve-out in my mind for you or in my heart, but I'd be content to say, okay, well, a lot of series jump the shark. I don't watch that show anymore, so I don't have to worry about Deadspin at that point. It happens all the time, but... I think for a lot of other people who were more attached or more militant about that concept, they feel very hurt that that decision was made. And it's, it seems like from every dimension, it was a kind of a quixotic and self-punishing decision. But here we are. Yeah, and I get that. But at the same time, I personally, I don't think I really go to websites that much anymore. You know, I have <laughs> I have writers that I follow. Right, that's what I'm saying. And yeah, like... And I'll click on whatever it is that David posts, wherever he is. Didn't matter to me when he was at Deadspin any more than it mattered to me if he was at the New Republic. Like, it's who's doing it, not what corporate banner it's under. And this is very much in the same vein that we've talked about of rooting for players and not teams. I don't really give a damn about the corporate entities so much anymore. And look, like, yeah, is is Geomedia, they're a wonderful company and I love them and I love working for them. <laughs> I'm not asking you to don't think I'm trying to bait you into biting the hand that's feeding you because I'm not. Exactly. But I understand the I understand what company I work for. This was an old editor reaching out and saying, would you be interested? And then we talked about it. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'd work with you again. Absolutely. And that's the way a lot of things happen. I mean, it's not cold applying to places. It's who you know. No, I've never gotten that. 
every job I've ever had has been through either them reaching out to me or some kind of connection where somebody was able to put a word in. It was never from just a straight up, like, fill out a job application. If I'm not working at this company, warts and all, where's the ethical producer of media content that I should be hanging my hat at? I'm not always... I'm, I'm not like the most super combative person in the world, but I'll stand up for myself. And like, if it comes to a point where they're like, yeah, you know, you've, you've crossed, a, you know, you, you're being whatever. Like if they, if they want to fire my ass, they can fire my ass. I don't care. Like I care. Uh, I care about, you know, losing the income, but like, I'm, I'm not gonna, I, I'm, I'm at a point where I've done and, and I don't, I don't want to sound like full of myself, but I've done more than I could have imagined doing when I started in this business and, and I'm happy with it. And whenever it does end, then it ends. And that's, that's a freeing thing. And that's really like, that's made this job where I'm still trying to grow and get better and do things that I haven't done before, but it's all house money. I've had enough experiences in this field to consider myself fulfilled at whatever point it ends. And I can, when, whenever the time comes that either I walk away from it or that I get booted out of it, I can feel satisfied with that. I've had a good run. I look forward to the day when I can get back into the office and, and actually put in the hours in the day that feels like a real work day as opposed to this current situation of trying to squeeze out something that I write and then like to, to actually really be able to do the job instead of, you know, this kind of work from home, parent from home, school from home, everything from home scenario that we're in. I've had a blast, but I'm not done yet. No, nor should you be. And I imagine that being back in the office would be kind of like Robert Redford and All the President's Men, where he spends about an hour and a half of two hours of movie just making phone calls. Hi, do you have any comment on that? Click. So I don't know. I've never really been a journalist in that sense. And I guess the only comment that I can make on any of that is it's a cliche. We always have to put ourselves in the other person's shoes. And if you're a writer then the barriers to entry are lower than pretty much at any time in history because thanks to the internet, you can always throw up a blog and publish something that maybe someone will see. But in terms of platforms that will both bring you the eyeballs and pay you something for doing that, there has been a kind of consolidation and collapse that makes that a harder proposition than ever. And so if someone offers you that platform, and the platform may be difficult in, in a lot of senses. There are a lot of words beginning with D that ran through my head, and I, I don't want to uh, make the same mistake I made before of blundering into some Nazi thing. <laughs> but it's a tough thing to turn down. And I, I've made that mistake. And again, not saying you've made a mistake, but I have been in that position before where I went for it where maybe I shouldn't have just because the dollars were right or it sounded like it would be a, a promotion to kind of a bigger league and I, I regretted it. I regretted it a lot and the good part is when you get to this stage of things and again it's different when you're 22 and, and chasing as opposed to 42 or whatever we are and trying to support a family and everything it's good to just be here 
It's good to just be out there and have people listening to you because at the root of it, at least for me, and I suspect you are like this too, is not that we love baseball or hockey so much. I mean, we do, not in that Jason Stark almost romantic way, but we love it a lot and we want to be around it, but it just happens to be the thing that we write about. And there are sounds, words that want to come out. And so someone gives you a chance to do that. You take it. Between old Deadspin and the people that have left Fox, I've seen it bandied about quite a bit. That Yeah, like an employee-owned sports journalism collective would be an amazing thing. I agree. It would be. I'd love to be a part of that if that ever was something that came to pass. But so far, that still does not exist. And, you know, given where I work now and the circumstances in which I took that job, maybe I would not be welcome. So, you know, maybe that door is closed to me anyway. But since we're way over time, the only other thing I will say is that I don't know if that sports writers utopia is coming. I hope it is. If it does, maybe after sports comes back. But right now, obviously, this would not be a propitious time to do that or hell anything else this is it's not just a desert for sports we're in and i don't know when it's gonna end jesse thank you for spending this time with me it's been enlightening as always i'm so glad to have been able to do it and thanks for having me back time to put on your beak mask and brave the outdoors because we have come to the end of another episode you can follow jesse specter on twitter at Jesse Spector, simple and direct. You can follow me at Go Stephen Goldman. Why Go Stephen Goldman? Because we all got to go somewhere, just never to Tulsa, Oklahoma. No, never. You can write us at infiniteinning at gmail.com and there's a Facebook group. Go to Facebook, search Infinite Inning Knock. We will let you in. And then the kind of actions that predominate on social media absolutely will not happen. That's a good thing. Should you wish to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash the infinite inning and let your fingers do the walking. We thank you very much. We also have t-shirts of our two logos at teespring.com. Finally, should you find yourself with a moment to spare, please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe. And if your podcatcher doesn't let you do those things, who said we were meant to be with the same podcatcher all our lives? There's more than one fish in the sea. This podcast was co-produced by Jeff Paternostro. Our theme song, which you are hearing now and have been hearing throughout the run of the show, is a co-composition of myself and Dr. Richard Mooring, who reminds you that masks are the only IQ test that has any validity, much like knowing when to get out of the rain. Well, if I'm not overly delayed footnoting every cultural reference on Dylan's new album, I'll be back next week with more tales and discussion from inside the infinite inning. While we've all pressed pause on so much because of COVID-19, at Yukon Health, we know that your health needs never stop. Whether you have a serious health concern that you've been putting off or need to schedule a routine appointment, now is the time to reconnect with your healthcare providers. From virtual visits to office appointments, we're committed to providing you with the best care in the safest environment. Yukon Health, here for you then, here for you now. While we've all pressed pause on so much because of COVID-19, at Yukon Health, we know that your health needs never stop. 
Whether you have a serious health concern that you've been putting off or need to schedule a routine appointment, now is the time to reconnect with your healthcare providers. From virtual visits to office appointments, we're committed to providing you with the best care in the safest environment. Yukon Health, here for you then, here for you now.